Okay. Time for a game of Spot the Difference. And uh, look, this is going to get serious because there's chocolate at stake here. So for a Fredo Frog, who can spot one of the five differences between these two pictures? One of the five differences. Why are we playing Spot the Difference? Well, let me just say that Spot the Difference is going to help us this morning uncover some very important things about Jesus. What we just did, the very simple process of looking at things that are similar but noticing a couple of key differences between them, that whole process is actually going to help us as we read Revelation this morning because as we do that, there's going to be some very significant things about Jesus unveiled. We're actually going to see some stuff about Jesus this morning that is very, very helpful for us to get straight in our heads. If we don't get them straight, I think we'll land ourselves in a lot of trouble. But if we do get these things about Jesus straight, I think you'll find that they are very comforting and very liberating. Well, in order to get to these truths about Jesus, let's tease open this morning's passage under the headings of what John heard, what John saw and what John wrote. Firstly, what he heard. Back to verse 9, chapter 1. I, John, your your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Sections open with John on the island of Patmos. Now, personally... Nowadays, I would love to be on the island of Patmos. It is actually a bit of a resort island in the Greek Isles. Very nice villas that you can stay at there. If you want somewhere to send your friendly neighbourhood pastor, that Patmos is a good place. I'm not sure John is all that happy about being here, though, because back when he was writing, it actually served as an island prison for the Roman Empire. Uh, And so did you notice why it was that he is on the island? Verse 9 tells us, He's there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John has been deported to Patmos, a prison, because he won't shut up about Jesus. And we thought about this last Sunday, that Revelation is written in a time of history when there is great persecution against Christians within the Roman Empire. And that's because the Roman Emperor wanted people to bow down and worship him as Lord and God, and Christians refused to do that. But to refuse to do it, well, you ran the risk of being thrown to the lions or losing your job or not being allowed to buy food for your family in the marketplace, or perhaps even being exiled to the island of Patmos, which is exactly where John is. Verse 10. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Now remember again from last Sunday, these seven churches that are all listed off here now, they're all real churches. They existed in the first century. Here's the slide again. Here's where they existed. But now you see a mysterious, loud voice, an attention-getting voice like a trumpet from behind John is telling him to write to each one of these specific churches. Whose voice is it? Well, that's what we discover as John now goes on to explain what he sees. Verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. 
And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. Now again from last week, remember, this is an apocalyptic book, so we're dealing with a picture book. Take in the picture here. The big picture is someone standing before John with massive authority. Look at him, verse 13, one like a son of man. As Alan's already alerted us to, that is a phrase lifted straight out of the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7 described for us one like a son of man and he is someone to whom God gives all authority or glory or sovereign power over every nation and peoples of the earth. In other words, here before John is the king and ruler of the world. And it's clearly Jesus. Back in verse 5 of chapter 1, John has already described Jesus as the ruler of the king's of the earth. Well, here now is a word picture of Jesus as the ruler of the kings of the earth. And he's dressed in a long robe. And he has a golden sash. And his hair is white as snow. His eyes are like blazing fire. His feet are like burnished bronze. His, his voice thunders like rushing water. A, a sword is coming out of his mouth. His, his face is shining like the sun so that you can't even bear to look straight at him. Picture it. I mean, you don't have to decode all the little bits, do you? You don't have to, you know, oh, I wonder what the feet of bronze represent. Asking that level of question is like sitting too close to the TV screen so you don't actually see the full picture. The full picture is it's very straightforward. Here is someone of absolute majesty. And so all John is left to do is fall at his feet. Yet when he does, Jesus reaches out and lifts him up. Verse 17, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. It's a massive description of Jesus. It's a massive picture of his authority. Here is someone, when they say jump, you ask how high. Write therefore what you have seen. Verse 19 what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, friends, just a little bit of time out here. Okay, Before we get onto what John actually writes, can we just notice here something quite instructive? I'd like you to notice that even though the general rule of thumb is go for the big picture... When there is something particularly significant in the picture, when there's a symbol that's particularly critical, it's actually pointed out to us so that we don't miss it. So, for example, here, the seven stars, we're told straight out they're angels. Now, the word is actually messenger. So it could simply be referring to those people, those human messengers, who were to deliver revelation to the churches for John because presumably John's not going to be allowed off the island to deliver them. The lampstands that Jesus was standing amongst, we're told straight out they are the seven churches, which makes for a lovely image really, doesn't it? You know, Here he is, the king of kings, the first and the last. He's not standing above the churches. He's not standing behind the churches. He's not standing in front of the churches. He is amongst them. 
That's a nice picture of solidarity for churches going through a hard time of persecution. They're not in it alone. King of Kings is amongst them. But I do want you to notice that all this symbolism, it's not hard, is it? Because it's, it's either so obviously out of the Old Testament that it doesn't need explanation, like the whole Son of Man thing, or else if something is particularly significant, we're just told what it is. And as we'll discover, that actually is what happens in the book. So stuff like, you know, you get to chapter 12 and there's, you hear of a great dragon who is, attra- who is attacking God's people, or chapter 13 where you bump up against the infamous 666 mark of the beast, we will actually be told what they are. Now, it won't stop some people's imagination running off with what they would like them to be, but in actual fact, we'll just get told, just like here with the lampstands. But hey, we need to press on because after these words of explanation from Jesus, he's now going to go on and tell John what to write. And it's here that we move into what is frequently called the seven letters to the seven churches. Although to be more precise, they ought to be called the seven personalised notes to the seven churches within the one letter. Because the book of Revelation is one letter that was to go around to all the churches, but here there's a bit of a personalised section in it in Revelation that John, that Jesus wants included. And it is here that we now reach a level of repetition. Because as you read through each of the sections to the churches, they follow a very similar pattern. We didn't have time to notice it in our reading because for the sake of time we only read the, the one, the one to Ephesus. But it's, it's representative of them all really. And so for example, they all start out with an identical phrase which says who the section is to. So chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Uh, Same word formula introduces each section. It's then followed with a description of Jesus using images that are cut and pasted straight out of the vision we've just seen in chapter 1. So chapter 2, verse 1, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Verse 8, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Verse 13, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. And so it goes on. Repetition, as in each case, you get a description of Jesus that's tapping into the vision that we've just seen in chapter 1. What then follows is a word of praise from Jesus. And it's usually introduced with a phrase like, I know your, verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. Verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. Now these are good sections actually, because they all give us an insight into the sort of stuff that just warms Jesus' heart. We discover that he loves, he loves it when we show love. We discover that he delights in our faith. He's thrilled with people who do good deeds. Jesus is over the moon with holy people, godly people. Hey, they're the sorts of people we want to be, aren't they? If we are at all serious about wanting to please Jesus. But having given this word of praise, that's then generally followed with a word of warning as Jesus points out what he doesn't like about the particular church. Look, for example, at verse 4. 
Yet I hold this against you. Chapter 2, sorry, verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. And it's here in each section that you get a bit of an insight into the stuff that makes Jesus really angry. And we discover that he hates false teaching. Jesus is appalled by sexual immorality. He detests slackness. He detests half-hearted loyalty to him. Friends, these are the things that we want to avoid at all costs, aren't they? If we are at all half-serious about wanting to follow Jesus. Which Revelation points out to us because now in each section you hit a call to change and repent, to heed the warnings of the stuff he doesn't like. And then you get a a repetition of the phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear. Chapter 2, verse 7, verse 11, verse 17, verse 29, chapter 3, verse 6, verse 13, verse 22. Every time it's exactly the same phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear. In other words, listen up. Do what I am telling you to do in this letter. And then finally, each section closes with an encouragement about what will happen if they do change. Chapter 2, verse 11. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. 17. He who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. Verse 27. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. And so it goes on. And each time, he who overcomes is promised a blessing. And it's actually a blessing which is cut and pasted out of the last couple of chapters of the book, chapters that describe the new creation. So that's the the repetition here. Every section's much the same. To the angel of the church at, these are the words of, I know your, yet I have this against you, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear, to him who overcomes. Okay, now it is at this point that it's common practice to now go through each of the seven churches and compare it to our particular church and think about how similar we may be. You know, I wonder which of the seven churches DPC might be most like. We've probably been in sermons where that's happened. And that approach is understandable enough. But we need to remember from last week that the opening of Revelation alerted us to the fact that this is a book primarily about Jesus And so the first question we need to ask is not, gee, I wonder which church we are most like, although that question may have its place. The first question we've got to be asking is, well, what's being revealed about Jesus here? What's being unveiled about him? And it's here that our game of spot the difference comes in very handy. Because when you line up all these letters, these personalised sections, and compare them, within that repetition, there's a couple of spot the differences that just stand out a mile. Let me mention two. The first being that there are two churches that break the mould because for both of them, Jesus offers no criticism whatsoever. For both Smyrna and Philadelphia, the second church and the second last church, to them, 
Jesus never says, you don't hear the words on his lips, yet I have this against you. There is only praise. And it's praise for the same thing. Look at Smyrna first, chapter 2, verse 9. I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. And now jump to chapter 3, verse 8, Philadelphia. I know your deeds. Yes, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now notice the parallels. Both churches are doing it tough. Both churches are copying a hard time from what is referred to as the synagogue of Satan. That's probably a reference to the way in which it was the Jews who were behind a lot of the persecution that they were going through. Because what happened in history was that because the Jews were just such a general headache to the Romans... Um, because they were just such a difficult people to negotiate with, the, the Romans actually gave the Jews exemption from having to worship the emperor. Because the Romans knew that it was just going to be way more trouble than it was worth to try and get the Jews to worship the emperor, they gave them an exemption. Now, they had to pay for that exemption. The Jews had to pay a temple tax for the benefit of having their own temple to their own God. They hated paying it, but it was an exemption nevertheless. Christians had no such exemption, especially Gentile Christians living in the seven churches of the province of Asia. So it was in places like that that Jews could slander the Christians with immunity. They paid the temple tax. They couldn't be touched. Christians could be. And many a Jew was very eager to point the finger at the Christians who weren't worshipping the emperor, dobbing them in. John writes that in truth, they aren't Jews in the sense that they're not God's people. They're Satan's people. Echoing words that Jesus himself said in John's gospel. And Jesus here commends both Smyrna and Philadelphia for their patient endurance through that suffering. And the fact that these two churches stand out a mile from all the other churches in that they receive nothing but praise... That spot the difference highlights just how closely Jesus holds to his heart those who are persecuted in his name. That when the going gets tough and it's actually going to cost you something to follow Jesus and yet you still stay loyal to him. He loves that so much. There's a second spot the difference amongst the letters also because just as there are two churches who break the mould by receiving nothing but praise, there's another church breaks the mould by receiving nothing but condemnation. It's the last church, Laodicea, a church who in some ways are the exact opposite of the other two, a church who isn't doing a tough at all, 
they're actually doing very well, or so they think. Look at chapter chapter 3, verse 17. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. Now notice the contrast with Smyrna. To Smyrna, who are poor, Jesus in fact says, no, 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 you're rich. To this church, who are rich, Jesus says, you're pitiful. You are wretched. You are poor. They are harsh words, terrifying words to hear from the one, remember, who holds the keys to death and Hades. And they are words that carry a very sober lesson to us in the sense that it doesn't matter how good a reputation of a church might be. It doesn't matter how self-satisfied a church may feel about how they're going. It doesn't matter how well a church may be thought of within the community. What matters most is what Jesus reckons about them. What matters most is his assessment of them. Which, if you think about it, it's tapping into exactly the same lesson about Jesus that really we discovered with the other two good churches. The lesson is, hey, it's Jesus' opinion of you that matters most. Even if you are copying nothing but grief from from a synagogue of Satan... In the end, who cares? It is the appraisal of Jesus that's far more important. And I mean, think about it. Ever since the vision of chapter 1, this idea about Jesus has been being emphasised. That the author of these sections to each church, the, the author has far more power and authority than you can begin to imagine. And therefore, to ignore what he is writing to you will get you into far more trouble than you can begin to imagine. Because his assessment of you matters way more than you can begin to imagine. See, we get assessed all our lives, don't we? Tests at school, music exams, Steadfords, HSC, university, audits at work. Many of those assessments, in the end, don't matter much. Once you get a job, once you go to uni, whatever, no one really much cares about how you went at school, how you went in your first grade recorder exam. All those sorts of things, they seem so important at the time, but there's a lot of assessments that are just quickly forgotten. Not so the assessment of Jesus. Not so the assessment of he who is the first and the last. Not so the assessment of the one who is alive and lives forever and ever. Not so the assessment of the one who holds the keys of death and Hades. His opinion carries more weight than you can begin to imagine. For all eternity. Now you do understand that, don't you? It's not actually what you think of Jesus that matters most. It's what he thinks of you. What does he think of you? How are you going as a Christian? I mean, you've heard all the stuff that 
he loves and that he hates to that how do you think what do you think he would say about your level of commitment to him honestly well to the first century churches in the province of asia many of whom are copying a hard time at following him I actually wonder whether this would have come as a great encouragement. That despite their faith in Jesus getting them into trouble, in the end, that's okay. Because it is his appraisal of them that matters most. And I would like to think that this truth about Jesus might also come as an encouragement to many of us this morning as well. Because maybe you're getting picked on a bit for being a Christian. Maybe you're being excluded for some things. Maybe you're feeling a little bit of the odd one out, made to feel the odd one out because you're the religious one. That's sad when it happens. But in the end, it's Jesus' appraisal that's going to matter way more. Well, what about the stuff you do here at church, at, at early church? Maybe you do things and it just doesn't get noticed and you feel taken for granted. You know, you might really bust yourself doing something. Nobody says a word of thanks. And you're hurt, maybe a little bitter. Keep thinking to yourself, hey, Jesus sees, and it's his opinion that matters most. Friends, it's actually a very liberating idea. Because isn't it true that a lot of following Jesus, no one else sees? You know the hard yards of just battling with a temptation in your own thought world? Or the private personal Bible reading? The quiet times that you have at prayer? Maybe the one-on-one meeting with someone to read the Bible? Good on you for doing all that sort of stuff, but usually there's no one else around to see you do that. It's okay. No one else needs to. Jesus sees, and it is his opinion that, that matters most. It's his opinion that matters most. I'll pray. Father, thank you for showing us these things about Jesus this morning. Uh, help us to take them to heart. Help us to be challenged, perhaps, by them because we do want to be the sort of people that Jesus would delight in, but help us also to be comforted and encouraged by them. Indeed, help us to strive to do things in our lives knowing that Jesus sees and it is his opinion that matters most. Father, thank you for this book. Amen.